This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. This week, we promote a living history event, Florida's Seminole Wars at the Pioneer Florida Museum and Village in Dade City, Florida. Our guest again is Andy Warner. He spoke to us last year about a Seminole War event, the capitulation at Fort Dade. This year, he's focusing on all three Seminole Wars from 1817 to 1858, along with a battle reenactment for this Saturday, October 29th event. Without further ado, Andy Warner, welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Very good. Andy, the floor is yours. What have you got in store? Got a number of presenters that'll be out there, a few entertainment options as well. Um, you mentioned all three Seminole Wars. You know, I, I do try to cover all three of those. One of the presenters I'm bringing in from St. Augustine, James Bullock, does a really good job of covering early 19th century Seminole and Florida history. Obviously, the focus is going to be on the Second Seminole War simply because it was the longer one and also is more uh, local to, you know, where the museum's physically located. Third's a trickier one. It's a little bit more of an obscure one. Uh, I did uh, put some things up in the museum today that I hope account for some of that. But bringing in uh, John and Mary Lou Massal, I think, is a good move because they're versatile and flexible. If I need to touch on those bases, I can definitely tap them in order to do that. Second Seminole War, that's really the meat of the program right there. Those presentations will be up in that main stage space, but John and Mary Lou will also be available at their table throughout the day. Uh, but the Saturday program is uh, is, is really going to be special. Uh, I got a lot of wish list things that I've been trying to get for a few years that I finally got now. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. How is this year's event different from last year's event? Last year, we did both a Saturday and a Sunday skirmish. This year, I'm going to use the two ideas, that those being uh, a homestead attack and also a wagon train raid. I'm actually going to use those two things together. The Lacoochee Log Cabin, at least the outside, is now finished. So I plan to incorporate that into the scenario. I have three movable wagons slash carriages. The battle scenario is that a group of militiamen are transporting munitions to a nearby fort in the Central Florida region. You want to call it Fort Brook, you want to call it Fort Dade, you want to call it Fort King, you want to call, call it what you will. They're on the road and they stop. They approach a little homestead, ask for provisions and to be put up, at which point a uh, white hunter-trapper enters the scene and warns the militiamen that, hey, you are on Indian land. It's clear that you're transporting munitions. You need to get out of here or there's going to be trouble. Militiamen don't take him seriously. In fact, accost him and apprehend him, at which point he breaks loose. They take a couple pot shots and then realize that they're surrounded by a Seminole War Party. Seminole War Party ambushes them. They take casualties, fall back to a split rail fence line at which point the Army regulars show up, exchange volleys with the Seminoles, and eventually drive the Seminoles off. Seminoles weren't really all about walking up and getting massacred. Uh, they were perfectly happy to make a strike and then fade back into the woods. So that's essentially how the battle scenario is going to go. So that's the theme. How did that contrast with last year? 
Last year, the theme was the Battle of Blackburn's Ford, which took place on Payne's Ferry. And it's certainly going to be done in the spirit of that, uh, because that's essentially what happened at Blackburn's Ford. December 18th, 1835, actually preempted the Dade Massacre. That's actually what it was. It was the Florida Volunteer Militia, based out of St. Augustine, was running a wagon train. and They were ambushed. Historically, the army, the soldiers did not show up, but I'm going to have soldiers in uniform show up, so I'm going to implement them into the scenario. How are Seminole represented in this? I was very lucky to procure Daniel Tommy and actually a latecomer to the scene, Vandal Samuels, uh, will be on hand as well, reciting poetry, singing songs, also playing the flute and telling stories. Are the living historians maintaining a persona and speaking in the first person, or are they presenting a persona and giving a narrative in the third person? Uh, there are a couple people that are really comfortable with doing first person. I enjoy doing first person as well, but I also find it somewhat limiting. If you're going first person, then you only have the knowledge of up to the date that you're portraying the character. And so I find that in these types of settings, larger settings, at least for me personally, I prefer to go into a third person. That way I can, you know, talk more about things that happen after my character would have expired or even relate to current events or to current popular trends. I find that it's easier to relate those things into a modern viewpoint to your audience when you're in third person. Don't get me wrong, I do enjoy doing first person, but I think for this particular event, I'm going to go a third. There are two individuals, one you may know quite well, Stephen Rink, and then also a uh, young lad who is new to the hobby, but very astute, named Marcus Acosta. He will also be doing a first-person impression. All right, Andy, you got me convinced, and I'm sure you got our listeners convinced. How much time should they expect to spend? If you're going to come out, you're going to want to give yourself a few hours. So they have time for the alligator show? One of the things that we have is alligator wrestling alligator wrestling it's not about who wins and loses you know what i mean <laughs> so there's two alligator wrestling shows and this will be a treat you've got five-time champion of the freestyle alligator wrestling competition coming out that's Farrell gales of Farrell's animal kingdom and he's going to perform and educate tell us more this is actually his first non-reservation show he's done exclusively reservation shows he's the only five-time champion you know, I've actually hung out with him a few times. He's a pretty impressive dude. He actually came recommended by Daniel Tommy, my seminal friend who lives down in Mamakali. He turned me on to him and then got to meet him and, you know, watched some of his work. And I said, well, you, oh, yes, we have to have this. And that led to something totally unexpected. I have a community service volunteer at the museum that is, is very difficult to motivate. I put him together with Pharaoh, helping Pharaoh set up the cage and mock everything up and change this kid's life. This kid's got motivated, he's working again. I was walking with this kid back to sign him out and he said, you know, this is the best day that I've ever had working here. And this kid's been here for probably a year doing community service hours. Unfortunately, a lot of the volunteer work at the museum is sweeping out hallways and cleaning windows. And you've got Jim Sawgrass back. Jim Sawgrass does his incredible presentation of uh, indigenous peoples twice throughout the day in the schedule as well. And then the battle reenactment caps it off. But there's living history going all day. There's main stage presentations going on. It is a full day. You could spend the entire day there. Andy, you've got a lot of outdoor activities, but you have the museum. 
Tell us about what you've been doing with displays in the museum, specifically for Seminole Wars. Good question. So last year, we had the big unveiling of three display cases full of the Keller Van Blarkham collection. The collection is pretty substantial and probably got 25 to 30% of the artifacts out on display. And so the museum very graciously gave me a new area to work with, actually adjacent to that area. Steve Rank donated a diorama of the AIDS battle. I collaborated with a miniature war gamer who was also a lifetime member at the museum. And we basically started over. We re-landscaped it. We put a road down the middle of it. We took all the non-Florida native trees out of it. We even made a little pond in it. We recreated the diorama. I even went so far as to get little twigs, you know, little twigs out of the, the parking lot and break them down to just the right size to look like the little log barricade that the soldiers built. We managed to put that under some plexiglass, so that will be on display. And then I do I had one additional display case that's gonna have more of the Van Blarkham collection in it that'll be revealed for this event. On top of all that, I don't know if you know the artist Theodore Morris. There's a pretty famous painting called Florida's Lost Tribes. It's an artistic map of Florida with small pieces of larger painting made of different pre-Columbian tribes and the kind of general vicinity that they lived in. There's a part where it says Tequesta, and there's like his painting of a Tequesta Indian, and so forth, so on and so forth. So I have that large foam core print that I printed out, and then Theodore Morris actually gave me several pencil sketches that he made of both pre-Columbian Indians and then also a couple of Seminoles that'll be on display as well. Those are the big things that are just coming online. We're experimenting now with using QR codes, There's only a couple of them around, but there are a couple QR codes around. Now, what that allows the museum attendee to do is to go and look at these artifacts and then just simply click the camera button on their phone and go to a hyperlink that has a video about whatever it is they're looking at. We have big plans for increasing that and expanding that throughout the museum, but we just drilled the initial hole with a couple of them that are in there now. So uh, that's something that I'm excited about uh, going forward. Now, Andy, on Friday, before this event, you have a school day. What's the school day all about? Who's coming out, etc.? It's a pretty good mix between homeschool groups and public schools. Public schools come in with bigger numbers. You know, they'll bring 80 or 100 at a time. The homeschool groups could be 2, 3, 4, 12 at a time. And they tend to have more flexibility as far as when they go on field trips. 700, I would say it's a pretty even split between public school versus private school. So that's a little more of a structured day. And what are you offering these groups? Right now, I have 17, maybe possibly even 18 different what I call learning stations. Living historians will be at these learning stations talking about a certain time period or possibly demonstrating a skill or both. My setup, a 19th century hunter-trapper, I can talk about the historical context of those people, history of the era. I can go into most anything, but I can also show all the tools that a trapper would have. I even do bow drill or fire starting demonstration. And it's not all war related either. I have one station called Fiber to Fabric, and it's going to have three different living historians there taking alpaca wool and spinning it into yarn and then weaving that yarn into fabric. So there's 17 of those set out. They all have little number signs on them. I communicate with the schools and the school groups ahead of time. I send them this schedule 
I send them what the 17 stations are all about, and then I send them a map of the museum that shows where they all are. Gives them an opportunity to, one, get excited about it, and then two, say, oh, wow, okay, I really want to see this one. Where, well, okay, you know, we only have an hour and a half here. Let's make sure we see the blacksmith. Let's make sure we see the black Seminole soldier. And let's make sure we see the rations tent. They might plan their day a little bit more strategically. And again, because it is a shorter day, it's nine to one, whereas the Saturday event is much longer, six hours, 10 to four. How do you get them moving from station to station? Do you ring a bell or something? Typically with smaller field trips, if I have 100 or maybe even 200 kids, I will keep it to more of a schedule. I'll tell the living historians they've got eight to 10 minutes. And then I'll literally like ring the school bell outside of the schoolhouse and that's rotate. With 700 people, that's just not realistic. Just, or just roaming and communicate that with the reenactors. I tell them like, look, you know, you're going to be five minutes in and there'll be new people that walk up. Don't stop what you're doing. Finish what you're doing with the group that you have. If they're really interested, they'll stay. If they're not, they'll move on. So it is more of free roam just because once the little conga line gets messed up, it just devolves into chaos. And I have no, uh, <laughs> I have no presumptions to think that I could get 700 people to, to follow that. So it is free roam. But that's also why I give out that map and schedule ahead of time so people can have an idea. You know, hey, like, this okay to go to this. And stress, too, is like what happens a lot is the stations right by the entrance get jammed up. So that's one of the things I communicate with the groups. And like, hey, you know, if you walk up and smudge people at the first one, push on through. There's stations going all the way back to the end of the museum. So various reasons for having living historians. What do you find the most important? Well, I, I would say the most important part of living history to me is educating the youth. This is it was bringing them up with exposure to it. I did not, I, I, I was a big Civil War buff in school because that's something that we actually touched on. Uh, and then, you know, and then I, my interest grew outside of what I could possibly consume in school. And I became a bit of an, ad, you know, an avid uh, civil, civil War historian. And then, you know, my, my interest expanded from there. I'm like, well, what led to this? So that led me to the 1830s and that led me to the War of 1812. And then that led me to, you know, the colonization and then uh, the Spanish uh, expeditions and pre-Columbian Native Americans. So it's just that it really got me fascinated once I got exposed to that. And I wish that I would have been exposed to that at a much younger age. I think it would have shortened the runway for me. And uh, so now I have the ability to do that. So, damn, I'm going to do it. Here's a great example. One of the heritage skills I still perform, I'm not performing it at this one because it's just a little too much, is I, I cast lead bullets. I actually use pewter for the demonstration because that's, that's toxic and all. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I usually melt a bunch of lead ahead of time and uh, have that out on display, and then I'll actually melt the pewter. So to be doing a demonstration to melt a pewter mini ball or, or, or musket ball, and then after it cools, uh, to give it to a kid, and that kid takes it home, now, all of a sudden, that kid has an attachment to that memory. Maybe they'll throw it out. Maybe maybe that little pewter bullet is going to sit in their, air quotes, box for the rest of their lives. And then every time they look at it, they're going to remember, oh, that guy with the long hair was doing that. He was melting that over to fire. Yeah, that's right. He was talking about Osceola, how he was like a Creek Indian. And, and then all those memories come flooding back. And that's really what I want to inspire in these kids. I want to want them to go home 
with something that has caught their interest, something that's going to make them go check out a book at the library or go on Wikipedia and look something up. That's really a win. Andy, I'm looking at the calendar. You've got a lot of events coming up through the late April time frame. Are you doing school days for all of these? We only do the school field trip days in front of the three big history events, Seminole Wars, Civil War, and then World War II. We have a number of other regular field trips that come in. In fact, there's one on November 9th. When they want to be near one of the history events, I try to steer them that way just because it's an awesome. So yeah, those are, those are the only three. So next after the Seminole War event is our Civil War living history event. I tried to theme those a little bit. This one's theme is the Battle of Mariana. Uh, Mariana town up in North Florida, and there there was a, a pretty pitched battle. Most of the regular group comes in, the war reenactors that come out. We have the Seven Pounds of Bacon mess band that plays. We do a Civil War battle reenactment. Those tend to be a bit heavier attended. You're probably going to see maybe 30, 35 people fighting at the Seminole Wars battle. We had over 100 at the last Civil War event. So that's always fun, filled with presentations, very much the same format as Seminole Wars. That'll be November 19th, uh, with the school field trip being on the 18th, the day right before. We elected to go to the one-day event because it was just too much of a strain on our volunteer staff to do three days in a row. And we found that the attendance on Sundays is usually down 50% or more on Sundays. These are on Saturdays, and Saturday, December 3rd, is your Pioneer Christmas and Vintage Market Day. We will have some Christmas-themed activities going on. There's going to be a costume contest. Almost certainly going to be somebody dressed up like Santa. They'll do Christmas decorations. One of our photographers will do pictures for kids. And then really the feature is the vintage market. We select a certain number of vendors that have homemade, crafty, artsy goods to sell. There'll be commercial stuff too. There'll be a nail polish lady there. There'll be a tumbler person there. You'll see a lot of like woodworking stuff and handcraft stuff, sentimental type of gifts. And on December 9th, a partnership for the Dade City Christmas Parade? Oh, yes, the Pioneer Florida Museum organized. Thank God I don't have a whole lot to do with that. It's That's a bridge too far for me, but the museum does help put it on. There's a lot of other people and a lot of other work that goes into it that's outside of the museum, too. I want to be crystal clear about that. The same group of volunteers that's put it on every year are still very much involved in it, and it absolutely would not happen without them. The museum just it is almost the receptacle of it. That's where we take applications and, you know, application fees and put the chart together of like the order of all the cars and all. But it's some of our volunteers, but there's a great deal of volunteers that just help with the Christmas parade every year that may or may not be affiliated with the museum that really deserve most of the credit for, for making that go on. Tell us about the January events. Well, January, I'm very happy to be able to start the year out at the battlefield in Bushnell. Uh, I got didn't get a chance to go last year because the whole family caught COVID, but I'm very much looking forward to going. In fact, I already diverted a Boy Scout troop over there that actually wanted to hire me personally to go and do a presentation for them. And I said, well, I will be at State Battlefield, and there's going to be an awesome program there. So I thought, you know, I'm really looking forward to that. 
And then for us, the Saturday after Dade Battlefield event is our Raising Cane and Moonshine Festival. Years ago, that was our Raising Cane and Chili Cook-Off. The primary activity is we make sugarcane syrup. They cut the sugarcane down, they grind the milk out of it, and they cook it up until it gets, you know, they slough all the impurities off and they cook it till it's uh, syrup. So that's the highlight of it. But wait, what about the chili? During COVID, the chili part just went away. The uh, company that did it just folded. I mean, I can't understand why. So we experimented with putting different sidecar things onto the Raising Cane Festival. And last year we added a moonshine onto it and it was a hit. And now I think that's going to be the fixture from now on. Andy, well, we're all caught up for events for the next several months. In May, after the non-hospitable season starts, is the Pioneer Museum still open? We're open 12 months now. We actually do a lot of summer programming, too. Now I'm talking smaller, more like three to five hour events. Like we do three or four of those over the course of the summer. For instance, this last summer we did a Civil War Homefront event where we turned the 1905 church. I know it's 1905, but it looks looks good enough. We turned it into a Civil War convalescent hospital. So we did presence on medicine of that time period. No battle. It wasn't a war. It wasn't about war. This one was about the home front. And then we followed that one up with a Night at the Museum event. That's the one where all of the living historians did first-person portrayals. So it was at night. We you know, shut half the lights off in the museum to kind of give it that eerie feel. Uh, and then our last uh, genealogy workshop. That was this last summer. All three of those went well. I don't have it planned out yet. We might revisit those themes. We might do new ones. I'm not sure. Andy, here's your chance to make your pitch for family memberships and lifetime memberships because they're cost-effective and pay for themselves rather quickly with the very awesome programming. Family passes is $75, so you can actually order it on the website or you can buy it the day of the event. So, for instance, let's say you're a family of four, husband, wife, if they're both under 55, that's 12 bucks each. That's $24 there. You got two kids. Two kids. Kids are only six bucks, so that's twelve. You got twenty-four. You got just thirty-six to get in for a husband, wife, two school-age kids. Thirty-six dollars to get in. The annual pass, the twelve-month pass, is only seventy-five. So if you come twice, you're at what seventy-two right there. Well, you know your third trip is paying for itself. So twelve months from when you buy the membership, and we even have lifetime memberships as well. Lifetime membership is three hundred dollars. Andy, the museum's in Pasco County, and you have some important news that's related to Pasco County and history. Tell us about it. I recently was able to track down a book called Private Pasco, which is Samuel Pasco's Civil War Diary. It was published by two of his great-grandsons, William Gibbons. I managed to get in touch with William Gibbons' widow. And William Gibbons' widow sent me several copies of this book, Private Pasco. It's really just a transcription of the pages of Pasco's diary, which I found incredibly exciting because hell, it is in Pasco County. In conversations with the widow, she mentioned that she has three pieces of furniture that were in Samuel Pasco's Monticello home, and if I knew anyone that was interested in it. And you, Pasco County resident, said... No, no idea. I don't think I can think of anybody who'd be interested in this. 
I said, yes, I know someone that is interested in it. Well, it just so happens that she lives in Monroe, Virginia. And Samuel Pascoe's, I believe it was his youngest daughter, brought those pieces of furniture up to Virginia when she moved with her new husband. I, I don't know the whole backstory of it, how exactly it got to Monroe, Virginia. But I'm flying to Monroe, Virginia, May 9th, renting a van and transporting the furniture back to Dade City. Pretty excited about it. With that, we're out of time. Andy Warner, thanks again for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority. Glad to. This podcast is copyright 2022, the Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.